Well, hello there, Dr. Nicole here. I am thrilled to share something incredible with you today. Imagine having a treasure trove of informative, entertaining, and empowering video content about the journey to parenthood right at your fingertips. That's exactly what you get with Informed Pregnancy Plus. For less than 25 cents a day, you'll gain access to a vast subscription library filled with documentary films, web series, mind and body fitness programs, workshops, and courses covering fertility to parenting and everything in between. A few of my favorite titles are The Business of Being Born, Empowered Mama, Belly Dance for Birth, Ease into Sleep, The Afterbirth Plan, and The Core Connection. And here's the best part. For a limited time, you can gain full access absolutely free. Just visit informedpregnancy.tv to sign up. Get Informed Pregnancy Plus right now for your informed and empowered parenting journey, all from the comfort of your home. Visit informedpregnancy.tv. Again, that's informedpregnancy.tv. Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through and keeping their delicate skin happy and healthy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick, goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable as the diaper rash. Instead, try Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician approved skin protectant, free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash. Use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel good about making the right choice. Nothing comes between you and your baby, not even diaper rash. Check out Dr. Mom Butt Balm, available on Amazon or Walmart.com. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm talking about fetal growth restriction. Welcome to the All About Pregnancy and Birth podcast. I'm Dr. Nicole Calloway-Rankins, a practicing board-certified OBGYN who's had the privilege of helping hundreds of moms bring their babies into this world. I'm here to help you be knowledgeable, prepared, confident, and empowered to have a beautiful pregnancy and birth. Quick note, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Check out the full disclaimer at ncrcoaching.com forward slash disclaimer. Now let's get to it. Hello, welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is episode number 83. Thank you for spending some of your time with me today. So in today's episode of the podcast, I'm talking about fetal growth restriction. It's also known as intrauterine growth restriction. I've had a few requests to talk about it recently, so I decided to go ahead and add this in since it seems like a few folks are curious. So on this episode, you will learn what fetal growth restriction is. And I tend to say fetal growth restriction as opposed to IUGR, intrauterine growth restriction. So what fetal growth restriction is, and it's not exactly straightforward or universal what the definition is. 
You'll learn the risk associated with fetal growth restriction, both during pregnancy and for the baby once the baby's born, how we screen for growth restriction, again, not necessarily straightforward, how we manage growth restriction during pregnancy and also during labor and birth. Understanding growth restriction is one of those things that you need to know about just in case. It's not likely to happen, but if it does, you have some understanding of it and it's not so scary and overwhelming as a result. And of course, helping make things not so scary and overwhelming is a really important part of why I make this podcast. And I know it's something that you appreciate too. I got this really lovely review from E. Franny B on Apple Podcast. And it says, the title of the review is my favorite pregnancy podcast. And the review says, this is definitely my favorite pregnancy podcast. Dr. Rankins provides evidence without bias to help moms-to-be make well-informed decisions that work for them. I want my birth experience to go a particular way, but Dr. Rankins helps me understand when and why particular interventions might be necessary. And I think I'll feel less confused and scared if I'm faced with those interventions. Please keep making the podcast. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, E. Franny B. for that really, really lovely review. Yes, helping reduce confusion and fear is definitely one of the reasons why I make this show and is a huge part and purpose of my work. Now, of course, the podcast is one way that I do that, but not feeling confused or scared is also one of the things you'll get after going through the birth preparation course. The birth preparation course is my signature online childbirth education class that ensures you are calm, confident, and empowered to have a beautiful birth through my unique five-step beautiful birth prep process, you will go from feeling scared and overwhelmed to feeling ready for your birth. You can check out all the details of the birth preparation course at ncrcoaching.com forward slash enroll. It is currently 40% off to help it, to help make it affordable during these um, challenging COVID times. So again, check that out at ncrcoaching.com forward slash enroll. I would love to see you inside the course. All right, so let's get into today's show about fetal growth restriction. So fetal growth restriction, or FGR, also known as intrauterine growth restriction, or IUGR, is the term that we use to describe, and we say fetus when the baby's still inside mom. That sounds so impersonal to me, so I often switch out fetus for baby just because it feels, I don't know, a little more like personal. So it's a term that's used to describe a baby that has not reached its growth potential inside the uterus. Now, the most common definition that we use for growth restriction is based on ultrasound. And what that is, is when the estimated weight is below the 10th percentile for the gestational age in that point in pregnancy. And this is only for in the second half of pregnancy. So as an example, if we estimate the growth at 28 weeks. And when we plot it against other babies and how they've grown, if your baby is in the 10th percentile or less, then we would consider that baby to potentially have growth restriction. Now, although we use the 10th percentile as the most common definition, sometimes we use the less than fifth percentile or less than third percentile. 
Um, and that's because using percentiles is a little bit controversial. So let me explain what I mean. So when we use that percentile in order to define growth restriction, there are a couple of potential issues with it. One, it doesn't distinguish between a baby who just happens to be naturally small. There's nothing wrong with the baby. The baby's just on the smaller side naturally versus a baby that is small because of a pathologic process that has kept that baby from reaching their full growth potential, okay? So actually, as many as 70% of babies that are estimated to weigh below the 10th percentile on ultrasound, so as many as 70% that are estimated to be below the 10th percentile based on ultrasound measurements, they are actually just small because they were naturally made to be small. So maybe mom is small, the parents are small, her other kids have been totally normal but are just small. So up to 70% are, are likely small just because of those, those what we call constitutional factors and they are actually not at risk of having any problems. So when we use this 10th percentile cutoff, there's this possibility of misclassifying these normally nourished and healthy babies as having growth restriction from a process that's, that's keeping them from reaching their growth potential. I hope that makes sense. I know it can be a little bit confusing. So that's why some people use fifth percentile or third percentile instead, because we know that on the really smaller end, those babies are more likely to actually be growth restricted. Okay, now the other reason that the 10th percentile or that using percentiles in general rather can be controversial is that it doesn't distinguish whether or not a baby may be above the 10th percentile, but is actually smaller than it could be. Okay, so what if you have a baby that is in the 15th percentile, for instance, but in that by that number, they would be okay. But actually, if that baby wasn't being affected by some sort of process, that baby would actually be in the 30th percentile, okay? So when we use the 10th percentile, we don't catch those babies who are actually estimated by the percentile to be okay, but they're not, they're not reaching their full potential because of an issue that's going on. Okay, so that's the other concern with using percentile. And then the final issue with using percentile is that when you do percentiles, you're comparing it to other references and there's little consensus on which references we should use. So there have been different populations where they take a big group of low-risk women and kind of plot all those babies' weights out. That's called a standard reference curve. Or sometimes they take like a general sampling of the population, a population reference curve in order to compare how your baby stacks up against this particular population or reference. And it's hard to know if those reference standards are actually the right ones that we should be using, okay? That's a really hard thing to sort of 
figure out. So one of the things that has been proposed is actually comparing babies to their own growth over the course of the pregnancy, as opposed to comparing a baby to a big um, population of other babies. I hope that makes sense. Okay. So those are the issues with percentile. I know it can seem a little bit confusing, but I wanted to give you a little bit of background on why it's not always straightforward and why this 10th percentile is a little bit somewhat of an arbitrary number that has some, uh, it's open to interpretation. Did you know that 95% of pregnant women are not getting their recommended daily intake of key omega-3s? Enter Ritual, their prenatal contains 350 milligrams of eco-friendly vegan omega-3 DHA in every serving. One of the reasons I like Ritual is that it's a female-founded B Corp meaning they are holding themselves accountable to not just their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. In addition to those omega-3 DHAs to support baby's brain development, Ritual also has choline and methylated folate to support baby's neural tube development. And the capsules feature a delayed release design to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. Why settle for a multivitamin you're not 100% sure about? Ritual was literally built on trust, so you know it's the real deal. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com forward slash Dr. Nicole. Start Ritual or add a Central for Women prenatal to your subscription today. That's ritual.com forward slash Dr. Nicole for 25% off. Now, Nevertheless, we still do know that tracking the baby's growth is something that is important. And I will say that honestly, most folks still use that 10th percentile cutoff. That's kind of what we've gotten used to doing, what we base our studies and data on. So that's most likely what you're going to see. But I do think it's important for you to know some of that backstory. Okay, so Regardless of whatever definition of growth restriction is used, what percentile cutoff, then it's either classified as what's called symmetric growth restriction or asymmetric growth restriction. So symmetric growth restriction accounts for about 20 to 30% of fetal growth restriction. And that refers to a growth pattern where all of the organs are decreased proportionally And that is because of some global issue that is affecting the entire baby. That is usually thought to be a result of a pathologic process that started early in pregnancy and it's affected how the entire baby is growing. So that occurs in about 20 to 30% of growth restriction. And then asymmetric growth restriction comprises the vast majority of growth restriction. So that's 70 to 80% of it. And what that usually is characterized by is a decrease in the abdominal size. So a decrease in the liver volume, a decrease in the fat around the the baby's abdomen in relationship to the head circumference. And that is thought to result from the ability of a baby to adapt to an environment inside the uterus that isn't necessarily favorable. So if there's an issue going on, what happens is that the baby will preferentially redistribute blood flow to those very vital organs like the brain, 
the heart and the placenta. Those things are important for baby to survive inside the uterus. And then it will spare blood flow to the things that the baby doesn't need as much, like the abdominal organs, the intestines, the lungs, the skin, and the kidneys. So most of the time, it's asymmetric growth restriction. That's 70 to 80% of the time. And that is an adaptation where the baby is preferentially sending blood to the organs that are most important. All right, so let's talk about what causes growth restriction. Well, it can be either from the baby itself, so there's an issue with the baby. It can be from the placenta, so there's an issue with the placenta, or there can be something going on with mom that's causing the baby not to grow as much. There can definitely be overlap between those, but roughly it's either an issue with the baby, the placenta, or the mom. We think that actually about 30 to 50% uh, of this is influenced by genetic factors, variations in birth weight in general, and then the rest is due to some sort of environmental factors. We also know that maternal genes will influence birth weight more than paternal genes, although both have an effect. So why do we even worry about how babies are growing. And well, the reason is because it can have negative impacts on a baby's life. So there's an increased risk of stillbirth when babies have growth restriction. The number is about 1.5%, which is still very low. Stillbirth in general is low, but it's about twice as high as what happens when babies are not growth restricted. And that number goes up even more to 2.5% for babies that are less than the fifth percentile when you look at their numbers. So there's definitely an increased risk of stillbirth with growth restriction. There's an increased risk of other neonatal problems like neurodevelopment problems, lack of oxygen. Babies have trouble regulating their temperature when they're born, when they're growth restricted. They have trouble sometimes maintaining their blood sugar. They also have something called polycythemia, or they may have it, polycythemia, where there are too many red blood cells in the blood. And then also they can have issues with their immune function. All of those things are more common in babies that have growth restriction than in babies that have normal growth. It doesn't mean that it's automatically going to happen. It just means that there is a higher risk. And it's more likely that the risk or that these things will happen, the more severe the growth restriction. So a baby, as I mentioned, who is like less than the fifth percentile or less than the third percentile has definitely a higher chance of having some of these problems occur. It's also a higher risk if the growth restriction is early in pregnancy. The earlier that we see growth restriction, the worse the prognosis is for the baby. So some of the long-term things that can result from growth restriction after the baby is born, sometimes they have issues where once on the outside, they don't grow as well. And then later, it seems to be an increased risk of obesity, of type 2 diabetes, also of heart disease, hypertension, and chronic kidney disease. We don't know exactly what causes this, but there's definitely research data that shows that babies that are growth restricted inside are at risk for some long-term problems as they grow up. And then finally, for moms giving birth to a baby with growth restriction, 
can be predictive of mom having an increased risk of having heart disease in the future. Again, we don't know exactly what causes this, what leads to it, but again, moms are at this increased risk of having heart disease. So there's short-term risk right around birth, there's long-term risk as babies grow up, and then there's also risk for mom. So how do we screen for growth restriction. Well, that is actually a major focus of prenatal care is determining which babies are at risk for growth restriction, identifying these babies and seeing if we can do or have interventions that can reduce some of those problems occurring. Now, even though we've decided that screening is a good thing and we should try to look for this as an issue, the unfortunate truth or research-backed evidence that we have so far is that we don't necessarily know that screening actually works very well or that we have great interventions to reduce the frequency of any of these outcomes. It hasn't necessarily been proven to be effective. And then there are also potential harms of screening actually, including overdiagnosis of growth restriction. So like I said, are we saying babies who are actually just happen to be small, but we're saying they're growth restricted. It's not always easy to tell that. Um, and that can lead to anxiety. It can lead to unnecessary testing. It can lead to induction of labor. So we have to be careful about how we look for these things. Now, even with all of that being said, we've decided that screening is better than not screening because we will catch some serious concerns and potentially avoid some bad outcomes. So even though we don't necessarily have all the data and evidence to show that screening for growth restriction is appropriate, as collectively as a specialty, we still screen for it, it's still considered a standard part of prenatal care. So how do we screen for it? The most common approach is measuring the fumble height. So that's when we use the measuring tape and we do that 20 weeks of pregnancy or later. So in 20 weeks, about 20 weeks of pregnancy, your, your uterus is about the level of the belly button roughly. So after that, we measure the distance in centimeters from the top of the pubic symphysis or the pubic bone to the top of the uterine fundus. And we use that just a simple tape measure. That's a simple and expensive widespread technique that we use to detect growth restriction, as well as if the baby is growing on the big side as well. So the first suspicion that a baby is not growing well often comes from this measurement. And what happens is we see that the length of the tape is not what we would think to be the expected size for the dates in pregnancy. Now, as far as what that discrepancy is, um, everybody defines it a little bit differently, but the most common criteria that we use, and that's what I used when I was in prenatal care, is that if there's a difference of at least three centimeters, so four or more, between how far along you are in pregnancy and then how, um, what we're getting on the measuring tape, then that is a concern that the baby is small. So for example, if you're 28 weeks, but you're measuring 24 weeks, okay, then that would be something that says, hey, we have this discrepancy and we think that there may be an issue. And that can go either way, actually, where the baby's too big or too small, that, you know, four or more difference before we get concerned. Now, how good fundal height measurement is, is also something that's controversial. 
One review concluded that it's not necessarily the best method and there are some things that we can do in order to make it a little bit better. Some of the things that we know can affect it, of course, are body mass index. So if you happen to carry more weight around your belly, then it's gonna be a bit harder to measure the fundal height because you're just not going to be able to feel the top of the uterus as well. Also, something else that can make it more challenging is if you have something like large fibroids that are distorting the size of the uterus and fibroids are more common in in black women, then that may not be a good way to uh, measure the fundal height as well. So the technique appears to work best when you can easily obviously feel the uterus and there are no other issues that are distorting it. And it works best when it's the same clinician measuring the same person over time and using an unmarked tape, okay? Because what can happen is if you know somebody's 28 weeks and you can see the markings on the tape, then maybe you tweak it a little bit, you adjust it a little bit to get closer to 28 weeks because that's what you're expecting, Instead, if we use an unmarked tape and we just kind of mark what we get and then measure it out later, you're more likely to get an accurate reference. And then the other thing that's important is plotting it or showing it over time. If over the course of your pregnancy and ideally measured by the same person, you know, you're two centimeters off at this visit, two centimeters off the next visit, then that is kind of a consistent growth pattern and not necessarily something to be concerned that the baby isn't growing well, okay? So that is what we use most often is fundal height measurement. And then we use ultrasound as an adjunct to that. If there's an issue where there's a lag detected or we can't feel it, or again, it's not reliable like for fibroids. So in those instances, then we would use ultrasound in order to better track the baby's growth because that fundal height measurement with the tape is inaccurate. Now, another potential method for tracking growth of the baby is universally performing ultrasound examination on every patient. And this is not something that's routinely done. There are some doctors who may do this, but it's not something that's recommended by ACOG as something that needs to be routinely done. There's no consensus on the timing. There's no consensus on the number of ultrasounds that need to be done. In general, if you are going to use ultrasound because of the other reasons that I talked about, for instance, like if you have extra weight and we can't feel the fundal height or it's distorted because of fibroids, then you do need to do at least two screening exams after the 20-week ultrasound. So two additional ultrasounds after that 20-week anatomy ultrasound are considered to be ideal, but again, there's not necessarily a strict protocol or way for how things go. There has been some investigation into seeing whether ultrasound can be used as a screening approach where we track an individual baby's growth over the course of the pregnancy, but again, that's still pretty investigational. Another thing that is also investigational in terms of screening is using three-dimensional 
ultrasound. It does appear in some studies to be promising to detect growth restriction because maybe it gives more precise information than standard 2D ultrasound, but it's not widely available and it hasn't been adequately tested in large studies in order to see how it can be used. So just to summarize on the screening, most of the time we do fundal height, for women who we can't measure it or the uterus is distorted, then we do ultrasound. Or if there's a discrepancy based on the fundal height, then we do ultrasound. There is also a small group of women who we recommend ultrasound to look for growth restriction off the bat. And those are women who are at higher risk for fetal growth restriction. So if you have multiples, if you have high blood pressure before pregnancy, kidney disease before pregnancy, lupus, if you have diabetes before pregnancy, heart disease, sickle cell disease, smoking, then those are reasons why we would go ahead and do ultrasound to look for growth restriction. Also a few more things, poor weight gain. If, if mom is really not gaining enough weight, also uh, assisted reproductive technologies. So IVF is something that we know can put moms at risk for growth restriction. Then we actually do do an ultrasound exam to estimate the baby's weight and look at the baby, the placenta, the amniotic fluid, usually once or twice in the, in the, third trimester. All right. So what happens when we suspect growth restriction? So when an ultrasound suggests growth restriction, the first thing that we need to do is confirm the suspected diagnosis. So even if we see a lag on measuring with the fundal height with the tape, and that that is confirmed with an ultrasound that is suspected that the baby is small, we still need another data point in order to determine whether or not a baby is actually growing small. We need to see how the baby grows over time to determine if the baby is actually small because sometimes that number will change. It'll be on the 10th percentile and then the next ultrasound, it'll be the 18th percentile. And in that case, it's not growth restriction. So we have to repeat an ultrasound later to see what happens. That'll also help us understand, is it a baby that is truly growth restricted and having a pathologic process that's interfering with its ability to reach its full growth potential or whether it's just a baby that's small? So if the baby has normal anatomy, if the growth trajectory is normal, if the blood flow, something called Doppler um, studies through the umbilical artery or the middle cerebral artery, those the umbilical artery runs through the umbilical cord, the middle cerebral artery is an artery in the brain. When they look at Doppler studies through those vessels, if they look fine, if, if there's normal amniotic fluid, then that suggests more of just a baby who is naturally small rather than a baby who is um, having their growth potential stunted. Now, when we go to look for the the cause. Again, it can be hard to tell, but we look for maternal issues, placental issues, or issues with the baby. So first thing we start with is a complete history and physical exam to look for anything that may pop up, okay, or things that we know are associated with growth restriction. So just good old-fashioned take a history, do a physical exam, see if anything pops up. A big one that, the, and this will usually be fairly obvious, is something like preeclampsia, particularly severe preeclampsia. So that would be high blood pressure in pregnancy. We know that that's associated with growth restriction. The next thing we're going to do is look at the baby. So a very detailed ultrasound survey to look for any 
anomalies that may be occurring with the baby that are associated with growth restriction. So some things that we know can affect baby's growth are some gastrointestinal malformations, um, something called gastroschisis, which is it's, it's a little bit complicated to explain, but basically the intestines are kind of on the outside of the body. Um, some skeletal malformations can be associated with a, a baby growing smaller. Some heart defects can be associated with the baby growing smaller. So we do a very detailed look at the baby to see if there are any things that give us a clue as to why the baby may be small. We'll also look at the placenta, of course, in that instance as well. Sometimes genetic studies are indicated in order to see if there's a genetic issue that may be causing the baby to be small. This is particularly the case if it happens very early. So if we notice that a baby is very small on say a 20 week ultrasound, then we're gonna do genetic studies to if they haven't already been done. Genetic studies to look at the baby's chromosome, if the growth restriction is very severe, so less than the fifth percentile, we'll look at chromosomes or if the growth restriction is symmetrical. Also, if we see that there are other major problems going on, so if there's issues with the heart or brain or anything that we see, then we're going to look for genetic studies with the baby as well. And then finally, we may also do some evaluation for infections because there are some infections with mom that we know can be associated with affecting a baby's growth. So some things that we know that are associated with growth restriction are cytomegalovirus infection, toxoplasmosis, varicella, rubella. This is why we ask if you're vaccinated against rubella and varicella so we can kind of cross those off the list if we see any issues. Cytomegalovirus and toxoplasmosis aren't things that women are routinely exposed to. And actually a lot of us will get infected with CMV before pregnancy. But if we see growth restriction, then we check those to be sure. We can even go as far as taking a sample of the amniotic fluid in order to look for any evidence of infection around um, the baby directly with amniotic fluid. And then a quick note about infections related to growth restriction. It doesn't appear so far that COVID is associated with the increased risk of fetal growth restriction or increased prevalence, uh, but we still need to continue to collect data. But so far, COVID does not appear to affect a baby's growth. Now, even though we look for all these things, issues with baby, issues with mom, issues with the placenta, a lot of times we cannot always determine what the cause for growth restriction is. And it'll just be something that we don't necessarily know what the cause is. And we just follow the baby and manage the baby accordingly. So speaking of management, what happens when we confirm that a baby is growth restricted? So I'm gonna talk about management in babies that are otherwise structurally normal and have normal chromosomes, okay? If a baby has something going on with the chromosomes or has a heart defect or an issue with the brain or the intestines or anything like that, then a management may vary a little bit based on what the underlying issue is. So I'm just talking about management and what happens if the baby is structurally normal and chromosomally normal. And that is actually most of the time with growth restriction, what is the case? Okay, so the management of babies with growth restriction involves three things. Number one, measuring the baby's growth over time, okay? That's something called the growth velocity. So the baby's growth over time, how the baby is behaving inside your uterus based on ultrasound, that's something called an NST 
or a biophysical profile. And I'll talk about what that is in just a second. And then the third thing is measuring the blood flow through usually the umbilical artery, but also sometimes the middle cerebral artery. That's called Doppler velocimetry. I think I'm saying that right. (laughs) But Doppler studies is what we shorten it to. And that looks at blood flow through the baby's um, arteries and particularly arteries, but sometimes the venous vessels as well. So those are Doppler studies. Okay. So those are the three things we do. Track the baby's growth by ultrasound, see how the baby is behaving inside, and then also measure the blood flow through the vessels. Now, as far as the fetal growth velocity or weight assessment, what that means is that we just see how the baby's growth is over time. We plot a growth curve for the baby to see how the baby is growing over time. So usually we do serial ultrasounds at every three to four weeks or so to see how the baby is growing. Sometimes it may be two to three weeks if there's some other concerns. So if the baby is very small, like less than the fifth percentile, if the fluid is very low, if there are abnormal Doppler studies, then we may do it at two to three week intervals. But otherwise, if the growth is near the 10th percentile, if the fluid around the baby looks normal, if the Doppler studies are normal, typically we do it every three to four weeks. That gives us some time to see how the baby is growing over time. When babies look like they're growing normally, then they're probably just a baby that is small, so naturally small, based on genetic factors or mom factors or that kind of thing. Hey, so you made it this far in the episode, and I'm thinking it's because you enjoyed this podcast. Well, if that's the case, then I have a favor to ask. Creating and producing the All About Pregnancy into Birth podcast has been one of the greatest joys of my life. I'm so grateful to have each and every one of you on this journey with me. Your support and engagement means the world to me, and it's what helps keep this podcast going. But here's the thing. Producing a podcast involves time, effort, and resources from recording equipment to an editor, hosting fees, coordinating guests, countless hours spent researching and crafting content. It all adds up. And that's where I could use your support. I've never wanted to turn all about pregnancy and birth into a paywall. I want it to remain accessible to everyone. That's why I've set up a way for you to support the show financially if you're able and willing. If this podcast has helped you during your pregnancy, your birth, or your life, I'm asking you to consider contributing to the show. Your support will help cover production and team costs and ensure that I can continue delivering the episodes you love. So in the month of March, head to drnicolerankins.com forward slash support and contribute whatever you can. Your support, no matter how big or small, makes a significant impact. It helps us continue delivering high quality content and ensures the future of all about pregnancy and birth. Again, that's drnicolerankins.com forward slash support. Thank you so much for being part of the All About Pregnancy and Birth community. Now back to the show. Okay, so that's the growth. Second thing that we do, as I talked about, was the non-stress test and or the biophysical profile. Non-stress test is putting you on the monitor and just measuring the baby's heart rate 
for at least 20 minutes. We look for the baseline level of the heart rate, the variation in the heart rate, something called variability. And then it's whether or not there are accelerations where the heart rate goes up or decelerations where the heart rate goes down. So it should never be a flat line. It should be sort of squiggliness in the heart rate. And then the BPP is the biophysical profile and that's an ultrasound. And it's using the NST plus the fluid around the baby, the baby's muscle tone, the baby's movement. So seeing if the baby moves and seeing if the baby practices breathing inside. And each of those things gives a score of two points. So those five factors, NST, fluid, muscle tone, movement, breathing, two points each. So the highest BPP you can get is a 10. And anything that's an eight out of 10 or 10 out of 10 is considered good, okay? Or if you don't have the NST, then we do it out of eight. So then a six out of eight or an eight out of eight would be good. These tests are both pretty easy to perform and we know that they are very reliable in terms of telling us that a baby is healthy. If either of these tests are normal, the risk of a baby dying within a week of that normal test is very, very, very rare, okay? Now, as far as how often we do the NST and BPP, if it's just mild growth restriction where the baby's estimated weight is between the 5th and 10th percentile, and it looks like baby is growing normally and the Dopplers are normal, then um, most of the time people will do it once a week, okay? Some folks don't do NSTs, BPPs on a regular basis at all for really mild growth restriction, but I think in practice, most will do it roughly once a week. Now for pregnancies that are complicated by growth restriction that is more severe, so less than the fifth percentile, where there's oligohydramnios, where the fluid is low, if you have preeclampsia, if the growth is not staying on track. So for example, if it's the 10th percentile and then we check three weeks later and it's the eighth percentile, or if there are starting to be abnormal changes in the umbilical artery Doppler studies, then we're going to bump that up to twice per week, okay? And that can either be two BPPs twice a week, it can be two NSTs, or it can be one NST and one BPP. So it's going to be twice a week testing. Now for pregnancies that are growth restricted and have very severe abnormalities in the Doppler blood studies, and I'm going to talk about the Doppler velocimetry in just a second, but for pregnancies that have growth restriction and those more severe abnormal changes in the blood flow through the umbilical artery, then you're going to be getting testing daily because those babies can deteriorate very rapidly when we see abnormal changes in the blood flow through the umbilical arteries. Okay, so for the Doppler studies, basically we mostly focus on the blood flow through the umbilical artery. I, I don't know the rationale behind why we came up with that, but that is what we know is um, indicative of issues coming up, okay? So usually Doppler studies are done um, roughly once a week. So they're done at the same time as the BPP, okay? So Doppler studies are done once a week and they can fall on the spectrum of no changes, the blood flow through the umbilical artery is fine. They can be sort of in the middle changes where it can be absent and then where there's absent blood flow through the umbilical artery in periods of time and then something called reversed flow 
through the umbilical artery is the last thing that we know is a, is a bad sign. So there's sort of mild changes, moderate changes, and severe changes in the blood flow through the umbilical artery. And based on that blood flow, we know that as it goes across that spectrum, the baby is more at risk for things like stillbirth. Now, as far as where do we do this monitoring, most women who have pregnancies that are complicated by growth restriction can maintain their normal activities and they can usually be monitored as an outpatient. So even though it's a bit of an inconvenience to go to the doctor once a week or twice a week and have these studies done, most of the time, most women can be monitored as an outpatient. There will be a few select group of women who need to be monitored as an inpatient. Those are typically babies that are very severely growth restricted. They need daily monitoring, sometimes once or even twice a day. In that case, being in the hospital is just more convenient. And it also allows for prompt intervention in the event that we find something that is a complication where the baby's not moving as much or if there's evidence on the testing that something is going on. There's not a lot of great evidence that hospitalization improves outcomes. There's also not evidence that bed rest improves outcomes, but it just makes intuitive sense that for babies that are severely growth restricted and at risk, having those moms in the hospital is the best place to be in order to intervene as quickly as possible. The other thing we do if moms have growth restriction is we often do steroids, beta-methasone, antenatal corticosteroids. Beta-methasone is a shot of medication, a steroid medication that can help mature the baby's lungs. Ideally, it should be given within a week before a preterm delivery is anticipated. So you may also get steroids if baby is growth restricted. As far as other things to do, there's no evidence that anything else helps. So for healthy women, we don't have anything that we know improves growth and growth restricted babies. We've tried maternal nutritional supplements, oxygen therapies, interventions to improve blood flow to the placenta, like giving moms more, um, plasma volume to expand their blood flow. We've tried low dose aspirin. We've tried bed rest. We've tried anticoagulation medicine like Lovenox that helps reduce blood clots, but none of those have been shown to help. So we just don't know anything that moms can do in order to improve the growth of babies. Okay. So when will delivery happen for babies that are growth restricted? There's actually not a lot of consensus about the optimum time for delivery. It varies from practice to practice, provider to provider. In general, we usually base delivery on how severe the changes are in the Doppler studies through the umbilical artery. And then also some other factors like the fluid around the baby and how the baby looks in the BPP. Okay. Now, if we know that there is reversed flow through the umbilical artery, then those babies tend to get delivered fairly early. If there's something called absent flow, those babies are going to get delivered a little bit later, but still early. And then if the flow is normal, then then your pregnancy can last a little bit longer. Okay. So roughly in general, delivery may happen between 32 to 34 weeks, depending on how severe the abnormalities are in the umbilical artery blood flow. If it's really severe, then it's going to be potentially even earlier. But if we can get you to 32 or 34 weeks, then we, you know, we do our best to do so. Okay. And that's again, for those more severe changes in the umbilical artery blood flow 
absent or reversed flow, all right? You're gonna be 32 to 34 weeks. Now, if the blood flow through the umbilical artery is just a little bit decreased, okay, that is not necessarily as good of a predictor of fetal death. And I should say the reason that we're looking at these things is we know that reversed flow through the the cord, I'm sorry, through the umbilical artery or absent flow through the umbilical artery, those are predictive of impending death. Okay. So that's why we get worried about that. So if the blood flow is just decreased, so it's not absent, it's not reversed. If it's just decreased, then we monitor those babies carefully with the continued BPPs and then you're delivered in, and BPP is biophysical profile, then you get delivered between 34 to 37 weeks, okay? If the blood flow is just slightly decreased. Also, if we see other signs like the fluid is low, if there's blood pressure issues, if the kidney appears to be uh, affected, if the growth has stalled, meaning that the growth was like, at the 10th percentile, it was at the 10th percentile, and then now it fell off to the 7th percentile, then we say, hey, something's happening and we need to intervene before we have this stillbirth. Um, Or if the weight is really, really small, then we will deliver between 34 to 37 weeks. Now, if the blood flow through the umbilical artery Doppler study is normal, then very often we can wait and deliver between 39 and 40 weeks, okay? Or even I would say 38 to 40 weeks would be considered reasonable. We don't delay delivery beyond 40 weeks because we know that the risk of uh, fetal death or stillbirth definitely increases beyond 40 weeks, especially the more severe the growth restriction is. So you really don't wanna go beyond 40 weeks at the absolute latest. And even then is really just everything is, is looking pretty good and perfect in, uh, in order to get to 38 to 40 weeks. Okay. I hope that didn't sound too terribly confusing. I know it's a lot of information, but in general, just to kind of hit back at it, we based it on that umbilical artery blood flow. If there are severe changes in the umbilical artery blood flow, you're going to get delivered earlier. They're sort of in the middle changes and you're going to be in the 34 to 37 week range. If there are no issues in the umbilical artery, then the 38 to 40 range. Now, as far as mode of delivery, as long as the testing looks okay, the non-stress test, the biophysical profile or BPP looks okay, then you should definitely go for a vaginal delivery, even if the cervix is unfavorable. Now, if there are issues on the non-stress test or the BPP where the baby looks to be in immediate distress, then cesarean birth is the right thing. But if the baby's heart rate looks okay, everything looks okay, definitely try for a vaginal delivery. There will be an increased risk of cesarean delivery or increased frequency, I should say, just because there's an increased risk of having a non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracing in a baby that's smaller. Babies that are smaller may suffer from a chronic sort of low level lack of oxygen, and that can be reflected in the baby's heart rate changes during labor. Also babies with low fluid, if you have low fluid around your baby, that can increase the risk of abnormal fetal heart rate tracing. So there is a bit of an increased risk of cesarean delivery. But again, if everything looks okay, absolutely go for the vaginal birth. And during the course of your labor, we definitely do continuous fetal monitoring, just because of that chronic low level state potentially of oxygen deprivation, then we definitely want to keep a close eye on the baby. There's also an increased risk of meconium, uh, passage of meconium, which is when the baby passes the stool inside. So we definitely want to do continuous monitoring 
babies that have growth restriction are not great candidates for what's called intermittent monitoring. Also for babies that are 32 weeks or less, we give magnesium because we know that that helps to protect the baby's brain. The final thing that we do for babies that are growth restriction during the course of labor and birth is we have a skilled neonatal team available, especially depending on the size that we estimate the baby will be and then where you are in the pregnancy. As I mentioned before, growth restriction can be associated with um, issues with oxygen deprivation. So sometimes babies have a difficult time transitioning to the outside life when they are affected by growth restriction. Sometimes they have poor temperature regulation. They can have trouble holding their temperature. They have a reduced amount of body fat often, and that can lead to issues with maintaining temperature. Sometimes they have issues with their blood sugar being low. So we definitely want to have a skilled neonatal team available in order to give the baby all of the support that the baby needs. All right, and then the final thing that I wanna say is what is the recurrence risk if you had a small baby in one pregnancy that it's gonna be small another time? So roughly the recurrence risk is about 20%. We don't have any good strategies to prevent it. We can address anything that we know is treatable. For example, we know that smoking will increase the risk of growth restriction. So if we can cut back on smoking, then we know that that's something that we can do. For women who have really significant known nutritional deficiencies, we can affect that. The other thing that we know may help is uh, avoiding really short or long periods in between pregnancies. So a short interpregnancy interval would, you know, we want it to be like at least a year before you get pregnant again. Long would be over two years. Um, so just delaying those intervals may be helpful. The other thing that may be helpful is a low dose aspirin if the growth restriction was related to preeclampsia. So we know that low dose aspirin helps reduce the risk of preeclampsia in subsequent pregnancies. We don't know anything in terms of dietary changes, supplements, anything like that that can reduce the risk. Bed rest, nothing like that. That doesn't work. Whew. Okay. I know that was a lot of information. So just to recap, growth restriction is when the baby's growth on ultrasound is estimated to be in the less than 10th percentile. We typically screen for it by measuring the fundal height and then do select ultrasound if we see that there's a discrepancy. Some folks go straight to ultrasound based on having a higher risk of known growth restriction or we can't measure the fundal height. So if you have extra weight around your belly and we can't feel your uterus, or if you have fibroids distorting the size of your uterus, or if you have diabetes before pregnancy, hypertension before pregnancy, things that we know predispose you to growth restriction, then we go ahead and go straight to ultrasound. Otherwise, we screen with just the fundal height. When we diagnose fetal growth restriction, then we monitor the baby by monitoring the baby's growth, monitoring how the baby is acting inside in the uterine environment, and then finally, the blood flow studies with Doppler studies, particularly through the umbilical artery. We deliver based primarily on how those Doppler blood studies are. If there are severe changes, you're going to get delivered earlier, 32, 34 weeks or even earlier in some severe cases. If they're just mild changes between 34 and 37 weeks, 
if there are no abnormalities in the Doppler studies, then 38 to 40 weeks and definitely not later than 40 weeks because of the increased risk of stillbirth. And then finally, during the labor and birth, which you can definitely go for a vaginal delivery, we want to monitor the baby continuously and also have a skilled neonatal team available just in case. Ooh, y'all, I feel like I got a little bit tongue-tied on my words in this episode. Now that is it for this episode of the podcast. I know that that was a lot of information and I hope it was not too overwhelming for you and you definitely have a bit of a better understanding of the things that we look for with growth restriction. Again, it's important to be prepared just in case and not feel so scared and overwhelmed when those things happen. Now, if you have more questions, if you want to know if other women have experienced something similar and what they've gone through, definitely hop on into my free Facebook group. It's called All About Pregnancy and Birth. That's a great group to ask questions after the show, to connect with other pregnant mamas. It's a really, really supportive community. It's run by my community manager, Keisha, who's an experienced doula. And of course, I pop into the group as well. But really, the best part of the group is the the other pregnant mamas in the group. So do check that out. It's on Facebook group. It's called All About Pregnancy and Birth. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and Apple podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And I would love it if you leave a review in Apple Podcast. It helps other women to find the show. I do shout outs from those reviews and it just really helps the show to grow. So I so appreciate it when you take the time to do that. I just love hearing what you think about the show. Now, next week on the podcast, it will be a birth story episode. So do come on back next week. And until then, I wish you a beautiful pregnancy and birth. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the All About Pregnancy and Birth podcast. Head to my website, ncrcoaching.com, to get even more great info, including free downloadable resources on how to manage pain and labor and warning signs to look out for after birth. You'll also find information on my free online class on how to make a birth plan, as well as everything you need to know about the birth preparation course. Again, that's ncrcoaching.com, and I will see you next week. 